0: Hello, I'm Miles Kington, and welcome to Kington's Anatomy of Comedy. Last week, in The Mechanics of Mirth, we looked at the way jokes work, how you get them out of the package, how you put them together, and why they keep falling over. And one of the things we discovered then was that some things are only funny when certain people say them, because it's in character for them to say it. So this week, in The Comedy of Characters, let's start by asking, who are the characters that we British do laugh at? If you were stopped in the street by a bossy person with a clipboard and asked to name your favourite comic character, you might go for Basil Fawlty or Dale Trotter or Alan Partridge. But hold on. Here's comedy writer David Quantick coming towards us, followed by Professor Terry Dolan of University College Dublin. Let's
1: ask for their favourites. Basil Fawlty is obviously brilliant because he's the world's most frustrated man. He's very angry all the time. He says the things that we'd like to say, but dare not. Norman Stanley Fletcher, on the other hand, is not so well celebrated. He's the calm in the centre of the storm. Everyone else is going mad and hating being in jail and hating being a prison warden. And he's just there to do his time. When he does say something, it's fantastically hilarious, and I think we'd all like to be that person, only
2: not in jail. Father Jack in Father Ted who's a classic example of an Irish priest who's drunk, uh, layabout and dirty. We often say comedy is subversive, but in fact it's not, it's conservative, because when we measure what Father Jack should be against what he is, we're saying the norm is conservative, the norm is to be a proper priest, uh, not drunk, uh, not slavering all over the place. So I think that would be a classic icon figure for me. It must be strange
0: for writers to have created figures who become household names. How many of you could name Father Ted's writers? So it helps to be remembered if, like Ricky Gervais, you act the character as well.
2: The thing about David Brent is he's, he's not a really nasty, vitriolic person. He's not a villain, OK? He's a bit of a twit. He's just a bit confused. He's one of those people that is aspiring for the wrong thing. He wants to be popular, but he hasn't thought of respect, He's confused popularity with respect. Ricky Gervais
0: on David Brent, the character in The Office, created by him and Stephen Merchant. And part of the comedy of David Brent lay in his never-ending quest to be a good leader of men, which brings us in one easy step to Captain Mannering of Dad's Army. Creators Jimmy Perry and David Croft, though, had more respect for the good captain than Ricky Gervais
3: has for Brent. I think I'm right there, he's not a petty bureaucrat, because there is the authority of uh, respect amongst them, as they're all sharing the same danger. But the authority isn't the iron discipline that you would get in a regular army. Well, of course, he does have, a, he has leadership, he? He's, he's a good he's leader, no he's leader. Doubt about that. he's very brave, brave, very
0: brave, and, uh, brave and very
3: enthusiastic, if 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 people follow <laughs> people like this. If a bit <laughs> foolish, he's brave and not, he never runs away.
0: So, what makes a good comedy character? When writers sit down and say, today I'm going to create one of the really memorable characters in comedy, as lots of writers do every day, what ingredients should they put into the mixing bowl? Lisa Medway, comedy tutor at UCLA, has one recipe.
4: It is a flawed character, because we are only interested in the things that are wrong with a character, and their stellar attributes provide absolutely no juice and no meat and no fuel or comedy.
1: A comedy character is somebody who contains something very appealing to the person watching, whether they want to be them or not. Most comedy characters you wouldn't want to be. You wouldn't want to be Victor Meldrew. You wouldn't want to be, oh, the stupid one in Friends or the hippie woman in Friends. You wouldn't want to be them. And you wouldn't want to really be around them in real life. But you can tolerate them for half an hour every week, as long as they're behind some glass in the corner of the room. Comedy characters are not usually good
0: role models or even very likable. So why are we so powerfully drawn to them? Lisa Medway again.
4: It's a schadenfreude type of thing. And it's also why we watch television, movies, listen to the radio. It's to connect with our humanness. When we watch animal shows, we're not invested as much. Well, maybe there's You know, some weirdo freaks who love the shows about gazelles and tree frogs and wildebeests. But the shows that get the best ratings and the best audiences are the episodes about the chimpanzees and the orangutans, the gorillas. They remind us of us. We are complete shameless narcissists. We can't get enough of ourselves.
0: Which is probably the same reason we find ourselves peeping through our television keyhole at Big Brother and Jungle Celebrity Shows. There's a theory that people watch these reality programs in the hope that two of the people will have sex together. Nonsense. These are really sitcoms, and people don't turn on sitcoms to watch sex. They want to see people turn into characters. There have been characters around as long as people have been writing comedy.
2: But which do you reckon was the first? Professor Dolan's answer might surprise you. The wife of Bath is someone who is, has been, we think, married five times. And she always married old men, and eventually the old men all died of heart attacks because she wore them out in bed. And then she told one of the great stories in all English literature, which is in many ways a feminist story. There's a riddle. Um, what is it that women most desire? And What is it that women most desire? And that is maestri, uh, mastery. mastery. Chaucer again. I thought we'd finished with him last week. It must come as a great shock to all those who
0: studied Chaucer at school to find that he was a comedy writer all along. So, what's so special about him,
1: Terry Jones? He's, I suppose, the first writer in English, in the English language, to be writing material that's full of psychological insight he writes terribly simply he's almost got no style it's just it's it's almost like you had a a tape recorder recording people talking uh in the street in the 14th century it's it's so
0: simple where it rhymes well that's enough of chaucer's characters and we can skip shakespeare because his
2: comedy really isn't that funny now hold on Professor Dolan wants to stick up for Falstaff. Falstaff is a magnificent figure uh, because he is a sad figure as well. And so he locks into people like Tony Hancock and others and Kenneth Williams because you see in them the precipice they are treading between elating other people and being in the midst of total misery themselves. He was trusting and his trust was abused. And uh, in many ways, Tony Hancock thought he was abused and misled by some of his writers. Uh, Similarly, Kenneth Williams too, was always very active in looking out for people who would be letting him down and Peter Sellers also as we've seen in the recent um, film shows just how paranoid he was about people who were not uh, with him and he would detect even the slightest look as something opposing him so in that sense uh, comedy and comic actors like that comic figures are so close to the tragedy. So where did Falstaff come from? Was there a real life model for him? Well, there was a person uh, in history before her, Sir John Fastolf, who was active um, about a century or so before. So I think he's a composite figure. Maybe he's not exactly based on Chaucer's Pandarus, but Pandarus is a bit like that too. He's looking at the young people, having a good time, and he's himself a figure of fun. Of course, all these great characters are not drawn
0: straight from life. There's always a bit taken here, a bit there, a bit stolen, a bit made up, even a bit based on the actor. As Johnny Spate says was the case with his creation,
3: Alf Garnett. The physical side of Alf has a lot to do with Warren, a marvellous actor, and uh, and Warren really did, did put flesh and bones on the man, you know. And then between us, it it then became a kind of a joint thing in the fact that, you know, I mean, for instance, when I conceived him, I didn't think of a bald head and a little moustache, you know, but Warren had that. Well, he had had the bald head, and so he started using that.
0: Of all the comic characters we've had so far, only one was female, and she was 700 years old, and it is an odd thing that many of the best female characters are actually men masquerading as women. So I wondered what Professor Dolan thought of this tradition.
2: I like it very much. I think we've got it, obviously, in Oscar Wilde, um, when we have Lady Bracknell who's really a man addressed uh, as a woman. Um, and I think later on we have people in, like, Dame Edna Everidge uh, and Lily Savage and others. They do it brilliantly.
4: It's a humiliation factor. It's men who are, for some bizarre reason, perceived as the dominant gender, diminishing themselves and demeaning themselves to be, dare I say it, a woman.
2: In a way, it's a form um, of castration on stage, whereas women have nothing to be castrated out of, have they, so to speak?
1: I think it's just very simply, it's a good vehicle for a male comedian to make comments he couldn't do in the persona of a man. If Barry Humphreys came on and did Dame Edna as Barry Humphreys, people would be slightly repelled. But because he comes on and he's this terrifying matriarch, he can say appalling things because he's a ludicrous figure. He's a man dressed as a woman. There's no such thing. No such thing as a man dressed as a
0: woman? I think that might be disputed by Eddie Izzard, who, when asked if it was true that he wore women's dresses, said, Certainly not. I wear my own. The most famous man dressed as woman, on stage at least, must be Dame Edna. And the way she started out
3: was... Well, let Barry Humphreys explain. As we travelled, we, of course, entertained each other, like any group of people do, in the bus. And I invented a falsetto voice. And uh, I invented a character to go with it. Because, you see, every night when the curtain fell on Twelfth Night, the local lady mayoress would invite this distinguished cast from the city of Melbourne to what was called a bun fight. Mm. It was cups of tea perhaps even a drop of sherry behind the screen. They used to give little speeches about how wonderful 12th night was.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And I would anticipate what the speech would be. And uh, I had a knack of anticipating some of these ladies' speeches very, very well as my funny little character in the back of the bus. And since the Olympic Games were about to be held in Melbourne, and everyone was getting very excited, I wrote a two-hander for Edna and another character in which she was offering her lovely home to billet Latvian shot putters or athletes of some kind or other. The thing is that when we did it, the audience were convulsed with laughter. It was like the sound of fire racing up the flue of a furnace. It was a great vroom because they were hearing described on the stage things that had never been the fabric of comedy. This was urban humour, where most Australians live, the way this woman saw the world, which was entirely really from her kitchen window.
0: It's not just stars who dress up as women. Look at the hairy-armed nurses in British student rag weeks and the huge-bosomed monster ladies at amateur nights everywhere. But why is it always that way round? Why isn't it also women dressing up as men? Lisa Medway.
4: When women dress up as men, it's called Boys Don't Cry. It's not funny.
0: That's certainly true in pantomime, where the dame is always funny, but the girl playing the principal boy is just a nice singing voice with long legs. Still, people did enjoy the film Victor Victoria, didn't they?
4: But we're not laughing at Julie Andrews looking like a man. We laugh at James Garner believing she is a man and being confused by his sexual orientation, not realising that she's really a woman. A woman can put on... Trousers and a jacket and a tie, and all she's going to do is look Butch.
3: I'm Burlington
4: Bertie. I rise at Old time
0: male impersonator Ella Shields as Burlington Bertie from Bow. But forgetting cross dressing for a moment, in fact, forever, how much do we need to know about these comedy characters? How complex do they have to be? David Quantick.
1: I think the rule with complexity of character is the longer a character spends on the screen, the more complex it can be. For example, a fast show character is just one line. Does my bum look big in this? You know nothing about them except they do one thing. Conversely, a character in a four-hour movie, unless of course it's Titanic, has some kind of emotional and intellectual depth to it. I think also a lot of times characters who we think are complex, like Larry David in Kerber Enthusiasm, aren't really. He's exactly the same as Moe the Barman in The Simpsons. He hates everything. You want to know his view on something? He hates it. What does he want for breakfast? He doesn't know, but he'll hate it.
2: I don't want them to be too complicated, because what I would be looking for is this predictability. So someone, say, in an Anglo-Irish poem or an Anglo-Irish piece of drama would always act in the same way.
1: A lot of British comedy in particular is based on familiarity. Oh, Hyacinth Bucket is going to do that thing again. Oh, there they go down the hill in a bathtub. I want to see the episode where Hyacinth Bucket, um, eats a bat.
4: Using a complex character... And injecting that character into a simple story is why we return time and time again. Comedy is unfortunately where we accentuate the negative. And in order to do that, the characters who tell the stories upon which the stories pivot need to be interesting and complex. Think about the people that you know in your life. I mean, we all have People in our lives who provide us with the tragedy du jour.
0: So many comedy characters, and where do they all come from? Well, I don't really need to ask that, do I? Not from radio anymore, but from TV, of course, and almost all from sitcoms on TV.
1: We do take a lot of our comedy characters, particularly in Britain, from sitcom. These are the easy characters to remember, because we don't have a film industry. (laughs)
2: sweetie can i just say that at least you're not fat like me hmm? i mean what you two don't seem to realize is that inside of me inside of me there's a thin person just screaming to get out
4: just the one dear
0: <laughs> jennifer saunders horrible stroke wonderful creation eddie lisa medway
4: in absolutely fabulous saffy is the audience we are saffy patsy and eddie are the train wreck we're the commuters slowing down to, to view the carnage. So when someone screws up, whether it's Adina or Basil faulty or Larry David, we expect them to do that. What we're interested in is how everyone re- reacts to that misstep and what specifically that misstep will be in that particular context of the story.
1: Comedy characters... ...don't always need an environment... ...but they do need something to kick against... ...so take Blackadder... ...who, his whole thing is reactive... ...same as Basil Fawlty... ...same as Victor Meldrew... ...reactive characters... ...they need something to kick against... ...if Blackadder was the main character in a show called... ...King Blackadder... ...there'd be no show... ...because all he does is complain about things... ...but if he can change anything... ...and it would be changed. He had nothing to complain about. If Basil Fawlty was the owner of Trust House Forte Hotels... ...again there'd be no frustration. He'd leave Sybil, he'd shag Polly... ...and he'd live in a giant castle and get a knighthood. No sitcom. Some characters are played by actors and some by comedians. Does it
0: matter which? Does the character ever gain from the persona of the comedian playing him?
1: David Quantic again. Stand-ups often make very good comedy characters. Bob Hope, who was a stand-up in the vaudeville days, he always played essentially the same character, a sex-crazed coward, which is a fantastic character. And so stand-up comedians do translate very well to movie comedy and to sitcom if they stay with the character. A lot of stand-ups were kind of castrated by other media. For example, when Morecambe and Wise made their movies, it was like Elvis's movies. It was a sanitised version. You lost all the anarchy of Eric Morecambe because he couldn't do it in front of a movie camera.
0: Of course, not every comedian has a persona i asked mark lamar about this and he put me straight but nowadays some some comedians adopt a whole persona, like you know al murray and the pub landlord you know well, i you, think but did you ever go down that path at all? no there's a big difference between a character comic and a persona and al murray obviously is a character comic wouldn't pretend he was like that in real life alexi uh, obviously wasn't it was his
1: persona which sounds like um an outfit you're wearing and i suspect up to a point it is for all of us Some comedians have a kind of vague persona, like Lee Evans. He can turn his hand to a lot of things, but I think the golden rule is the closer a stand-up is to the character he plays on television, the more likely he is of having success. The relationship between stand-ups and sitcoms was at its oddest in the US
0: show Seinfeld. Jerry Seinfeld was a stand-up in real life. In the sitcom, we just see his private life, which is hilarious. We also occasionally see him working and doing stand-up, which is generally far from hilarious. But that's not the only odd thing. Lisa Medway.
4: We never knew about his stand-up status on the show. It was never defined whether he was hugely successful or he just did the comedy circuit. Most stand-up comics, they travel 10 months out of the year. Jerry Seinfeld never went out of town. He didn't even go to Philadelphia or Newark. He never left New York. How often did we see him have to go to work or have to work on material or have to do something significant with his life in uh, the context of his career? Never,
0: so what happens when a comedian's act is drawn from his very own character? Does the comedian benefit from this, or does he suffer from it? Mark Lamar. There's that great quote, the mask eats into the face, and you do feel a bit like that, that on stage you're, you're such an exaggerated part of um, one element of your brain. And eventually, for most comics, they kind of become that. They're quite ugly parts of your, your person, because it gets such a big reaction. Whenever you decide that a character is an extension of a performer's own personality, you suddenly remember that Laurel and Hardy were the other way round, in real life. Stan Laurel was no idiot. It was he who had the ideas and all the business acumen. But John Cleese and Basil Fawlty, are they not related?
1: David Quantic thinks so. John Cleese, writing Basil Fawlty, was essentially writing, very sensibly, a projection of himself. An extreme version of John Cleese, so he was able to put that over well. A certain number of people assume that I must be Basil. They do not see that this is a kind of a performance. It doesn't happen in other countries. In America, for example, people accept that it was a bit of writing and performing like any other performance. And I think it's because I caught something about the British character that was so essential to a certain kind of lower middle class conglomeration of attitudes that it struck home. And caused me to be identified with this wretched character, this awful man, ever since. Ronnie Barker, on the other hand, didn't want to be Fletcher. He didn't want to play a criminal. As it turned out, he was an unlikely choice. When you see him pretend to be a bandsman in The Two Ronnies, you don't think of Fletcher. But he's fantastic because he's a hugely talented comic actor. And when he turns down the volume, and a lot of comic actors are only good when they do this. Robin Williams springs to mind. When he turns down the volume, it's genuinely powerful.
0: And how, like David
2: Brent, is Ricky Gervais? Oh, my word. I think there's a bit of him in all of us. I think we all want to be loved, and we all want to take things back. It's just that you can't, when it's being recorded, and I I suppose that's a bit of a fear, that that dream when you're on stage and you've forgotten your trousers. No-one wants to be a fool. No-one wants to fall over in a disco. However funny think it is, they wish they hadn't. You feel that there might be something of yourself in each of these characterizations.
3: Well, no. Uh, I think this is inevitable, that something of yourself does
0: come through. However much you try to hide it, there's always just that odd thing that creeps in. At least I can see it always. It's very strange to hear Peter Sellers being asked if his personality coloured his characters. We're always told that Sellers really had no discernible character of his own. And all I can say is that on the one occasion I met him at length, I got exactly the same impression. He wasn't really there. And maybe that's why he was so brilliant at creating such different characters. And yet he went from one to another so quickly that most of them are now forgotten. And he's remembered above all for being a clumsy French policeman. And there must have been a time when Sellers said to himself, I've got to stop this, I can't spend the rest of my life as Inspector Clouseau. But when your fame and fortune are bound up with a character, can you ever really escape?
4: What happens when an iconic, well-known character portrayed by a particular actor wants to break free of that mould and do something different? Failure.
1: It can be risky. I remember with Vic and Bob, they dumped all their catchphrases, which was a very brave thing to do and a very sensible thing to do. But you've just got to start all over again. If also you're someone like Ronnie Barker or David Jason, a very good character actor and people will provide stuff for you, you're going to be able to do loads of different characters in your career. But if you're someone like, say, Blakey from On the Buses, you may have to wait until you're old enough to be in Last of the Summer Wine before you get any work again.
3: Mr Hearn, why are you abandoning Mr Pastry?
1: Well, I'm, I'm not. Uh, this isn't true. I'm not abandoning Mr. Pastry. I'm just sending him away because I don't think he would quite understand uh, what I'm doing. He wouldn't understand the character uh, that I'm playing. Possibly when he comes back and, and we're all nicely uh, run in, uh, he'll understand.
2: But
3: you made such a success of Mr. Pastry. Why have you turned to, to becoming a serious actor?
1: Well, you see, uh, we all hope for success in all the characters we play. This one happened to be a little bit stronger than than any of us thought of. And I thought Mr. Pastry would be a a very good name. The moment he had his own name, he took over completely. And Richard Hearn just disappeared. My wife was called Mrs. Pastry and my children called most extraordinary name. It's almost like I've created a Frankenstein. Uh, People don't want me, they want him.
0: (laughs) Another one who wanted to move on, Richard Hearn, who was Mr. Pastry, the Krusty the Clown of the 1950s, and who sounded, I've just realised, a lot like John Fortune. I'm afraid that Richard Hearn never survived his makeover.
4: We're so fickle as, as an audience, we don't buy them in another role, because the familiarity is part of the experience
2: i think if someone becomes a very successful typecast figure then she or he later on will always be trammelled by that connection in people's minds and people want them to act in that certain way it was once said about lloyd george if you imagine him alone in a room there's nobody there so maybe comedy actors in particular are people who are simply ciphers when they're not being comic do you remember margaret
0: rutherford in those old british films Always played the same comic old lady. Good stuff, too. And here she is in 1960 being questioned about her nervous breakdowns by an interviewer who may have been not quite the right man for the job. Miss Rutherford, you once referred to the sadness in the world and said, what I really want to do is to make the world laugh. In this, I think you're very successful. But was it your concern for the world's sadness, do you think, that led to your breakdown some years ago? Had you become saddened yourself?
2: well i think uh, one only has a breakdown when one feels that the whole of one's object for living has gone one has lost one's roots one's lost one's bearings that i think is almost the deepest sadness that can be imagined in the world today
0: the reason i ask this miss rutherford is because one never expects somehow a funny person to
2: become ill don't you really you with your intelligence
0: Well, we hope that they'll make us laugh. We never expect them to be sad.
2: Oh, but surely you realise that you'll never have a comedian who hasn't got a very deep strain of sadness within his nature or her nature. Uh, One thing is incidental on the other.
1: Actors and performers are insecure people for obvious reasons. They rely entirely on being liked by people. They spend a lot of time just riding on the public mood and if the public mood changes you're stuffed also actors and performers are grown-ups and they get bored spending 20 years of your life with lorry drivers leaning out the window of their cabs and shouting your catchphrase back at you or in the case of strange people thinking you are the character will take its toll
3: i walk down the street and it's hello alf and um you know when i go to tottenham I'm, i'm a supporter of tottenham Hotspur. i have a season ticket i go every other saturday and uh People say, hey, what are you doing here, Alf? I thought you was Amherst supporter, you know.
2: I don't resent Alf anymore, I'm, I'm grateful. I now accept that uh, Alf and I will go to the grave together. There's no doubt that if I never played him again, uh, it'll be in my obituary somewhere that I played him.
0: It was Johnny Spate who created Alf Garnet and thus caused Warren Mitchell so many awkward moments in the street. And that's what's so great about being a writer. Nobody stops you in the street and does funny walks or accuses you of being Jewish.
3: Oh, Elf's always accused of by his wife of being Jewish. Well, because Warren is, you see. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and there's these great protestations, Elf, because in the East End of London, who knows who you are? Right. <laughs> really.
0: Yes. Well, we've got no time left to talk about Jewish humour, but luckily we've got another whole programme next week, the Geopolitics of Jest, in which we'll look at the way comedy has developed and is going on developing in different cultures and different countries around the world, and why nobody tells Irish jokes anymore except in Ireland, where they tell them about Kerry people. Funny thing, comedy. The producers were Andrew McGibbon and Nick Romero. Kington's Anatomy of Comedy is a Curtains for Radio production for BBC Radio 4.
2: And it was presented by Mars Kington, of
1: course.